0: Would you please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth? We're in chapter 3 this morning. So this is our third week out of four on this series. And once again, I'm going to read our chapter and then we'll work through it a verse at a time. So when you find Ruth chapter 3, would you stand up? And I will read the passage and you can follow along. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you are with, is he not our kinsman? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet, and he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing. For you are a near kinsman. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am your near kinsman. However... There is a kinsman nearer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a near kinsman for you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. So when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, this, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law. And then she said, sit still, my daughter until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are grateful to have your word that we can read and study and learn from. Lord, this word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can pierce to our innermost being. And we welcome that this morning, Lord. You have spoken in your word, but we desire for your Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives, to give us understanding, both in terms of knowledge of this passage, but much more than that, how we should live in light of this passage today and this week. So Lord, give us ears to hear you speaking. May your word be clear. I ask that your Holy Spirit would Empower me to preach your word accurately and clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Quick review. I've shown you this the other two weeks, but there are three main characters in the book of Ruth. The three main characters are Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law, and Boaz is a relative. That's what we know at this point. There are some key concepts, key words and ideas that I've shared with you each week, and those are redemption, redemption, That shows up a good bit today. I think that word is seven times in this chapter. The word return, that was mostly chapter one. The word glean, that was last week in chapter two. Kindness comes up three times in this book, but that's that word mercy. When we said our scripture memory verse a little while ago from Lamentations, it is of his mercies that we're not consumed. That's the same word, mercy, loving loyalty, kindness. And then providence is not a word that's in this book and yet it's all over this book. This book in particular doesn't say very many times, the Lord did this or the Lord said that, and yet we see that he's orchestrating and working generally behind the scenes to make all this occur. There are four chapters of this book, and I've given you a theme for each chapter. The first chapter was returning. They went to Moab, came back to Bethlehem. Then reaping, that was last week, gleaning in the fields, meeting Boaz, And honestly, you could switch these two if you wanted to, but chapter three, I think, is more about redeeming, and chapter four is more about resting. So that's how I'm going to treat it today and next week. All of that, if you've been here the other weeks, is review. But here is the idea I want you to go away with today, and that is to find rest in your Redeemer. Find rest in your Redeemer. In this story, that Redeemer... One of the potential redeemers is Boaz. In our lives, spiritually, our redeemer is Jesus. So we're going to talk about both those things, but finding rest in our redeemer. Someone wrote that rest is a central theme of Ruth chapter 3, which begins with Naomi seeking rest for Ruth, that's in verse 1, and then ends with the confidence that Boaz will not rest until he has provided rest to Ruth and Naomi. Throughout the book, I've also been offering you statements about God. Who is God? God is God of, and I've given you several, God is the God of the full and empty. And we saw that the first week. That Naomi says, I went out full and I came back empty. Well, you know what? God is still God when we feel full and when we feel empty. It's not about our feelings. It's about the fact that he is God and he is good and he is kind and he is faithful. Second, God is the God of the insignificant. He set up laws that had been On the books for centuries at this point on how to provide for the poor in the land, that gleaning principle that we talked about last week, he had that centuries before Ruth was born and way before she ever came to the land of Israel. And he provided in that way. He cares about widows and orphans and strangers, meaning people from a different place. Then God is the God of refuge and reward. He protects us. He told Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward in Genesis 12. That's the idea, that he is all of these things to us. And then, for starters today, we'll see that God is the God of rest. Go back with me to verse 1, please. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? What's she talking about? Ruth doesn't need an alarm system. It's not that kind of security. It is Safety and more specifically it is rest if you have an ESV or or a CSB. That's the word you have there rest It's the same word that we had back in chapter 1 different form of the same Hebrew word translated rest and there Naomi was talking to Ruth and Orpah and saying the Lord grant that you may find rest Each in the house of her husband. That's what this means. It's a security that comes from marriage In that culture, in that context, it was important to have someone to provide for you, particularly if you're a woman, to have a household, to have a husband, to have sons to care for you. So Naomi had a feeling of responsibility. She wanted to take care of Ruth. Specifically, she wanted Ruth to have a husband and a home. Now, let's understand right off the bat here Believing in God's sovereignty doesn't mean that you sit back passively all the time. She could have said, Ruth, I know God is going to provide a spouse for you. Let's just sit here and wait and see what happens. That's not what happened last week. Ruth got permission from Naomi, I want to go glean. This is a law that's designed to provide for us so that we can go get some food. I'm going. And she said, go ahead, my daughter. Now we see a little bit different, Naomi. We talked about the evidence of her change of heart last week, that she had been bitter when she came back. And God has done a work in her heart, and she's praising the God who is still faithful and kind to both the living and the dead. Meaning, my spouse, my sons have died, and yet God is not just kind to them, he is still God. He is still kind to the living, to Ruth and to me. So we saw that change of heart in her, but she wasn't just going to sit around and wait for something to happen. She was active. Faith acts. James said that. I will show you my faith by my works. So they not activity to save, but activity because of salvation, because of something that God has shown you to do. So Naomi is getting involved here. Some people have described her as a matchmaker in this chapter. There's a little bit of that, that feel to it but she's saying, shall I not seek, shall I not act, shall I not do something for you? Yes, she believes in the sovereignty of God. Yes, she believes he is being kind to everyone, but she has a plan that she has worked out. Look at verse two, let's see the plan. Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Rhetorical question, yes he is. In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in and cover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Now we need some context. If you're like me, you don't know a whole lot about winnowing grain or a threshing floor. So what's a threshing floor? Let's start there. Threshing floor would have usually been on a hill. It's gonna be up high if possible and it's gonna be on stone or some, a hard surface, so that they can sweep it off. It, it's not gonna, the grain's not going to get down in mud or anything like that. It's going to be a hard surface, probably stone. And these threshing floors were a public area. The community shared the threshing floor. They took turns at the threshing floor. And what would happen, often they would have animals who would trample the grain, which sounds odd to us, but that would help to separate the, the chaff from the grain, the kernel that they cared about. So sometimes they would have a a sled or something that the animals pulled. Sometimes the animals would just walk on these grains and that would help the process get started. And after that had happened at the threshing floor, then is the process of winnowing. So winnowing would be using a tool like a basket or else by hand throwing this grain up in the air and it would separate. And the reason you're up on a hill is so that the wind could carry that chaff away and then the grain falls right back down. That's the point. That's what they're doing. Foreign to us, we have machines that do most of our farming now, but that's how they were doing it. So he's at the threshing floor and he is winnowing. And notice what she says. He is winnowing barley tonight. How does she know that? Probably she had gone to the shared Google calendar and figured out which turn she had probably been watching. And on any other night, when Boaz is finished for the day, he would probably come home and maybe the path to his house went by theirs, I don't know. But she had done some homework and she knew that he's winnowing barley tonight. The way that worked is that it, does that seem odd to you at all? In that culture, they didn't have lighting, so why would he be doing it at night? The wind would pick up in the afternoon and into the evening. And generally, if it was harvest time and you're threshing your wheat, you're threshing your barley, you would start when that wind picked up late in the afternoon and you would keep going until the wind died down for the night. And that could be eight o'clock, that could be 10 o'clock, that could be midnight. A lot of times when that finished, that's when they would have a a feast, have a little party, have a meal once the wind had died down and they couldn't winnow any more grain that evening. So that's the context. They're working the night. This is sunup to sundown kind of work and then you're going to work into the night. And usually those men who are working at the threshing floor are going to stay there. They're going to sleep next to their grain. Why? To guard it. To keep enemies from coming and stealing it. So they they generally are going to stay there till after dark working and often they're going to sleep there. So Naomi did her homework. She figured out which night he was going to be there and then she has some more instructions for Ruth. She says, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment. Back in that time, in that culture, you would take a bath and change clothes only for special occasions. So she's going to do that. Anoint would be similar to perfume or deodorant for us. Put on your best garment. Probably we're talking about an outer garment, something warm, because she's going to be there into the evening when it cools off and gets cold. So that's for warmth. What's she doing? She's really telling Ruth, act like a bride preparing for your wedding before you go down to this threshing floor. She also says, go down, but don't make yourself known. You're going to go without being seen. You're going to do this as... uh, Carefully as possible not to be seen. And wait until he has finished eating and drinking. Wait until the right time. That's a little lesson as well. Probably don't approach him when he's hungry. Is kind of the idea there. When he lies down, notice where he lies. It is important for this story that she know that she's going and talking to Boaz. Okay, that, That's important that she knows where he lies, which grain pile he is lying next to, likely to protect it. And then uncover his feet. That means take his outer garment, his blanket. Take it off so that he will be cold. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you, you sleep with a brother or sister or your spouse and you fight over the blanket sometimes. And all of a sudden you wake up in the night and you're cold. That's the idea. You wake up because you're cold. That's what she's trying to get Ruth to do. This seems strange to us. Does this seem normal to anybody, what she's describing, what she's suggesting? No. No. Culturally, this is strange to us, but not in that culture, not at that time. Some of you may be thinking, this, this seems off. She's approaching him at night. This is not a seductive act. This is not anything inappropriate. I want to emphasize that. This is actually part of Israelite custom and law. It was fairly common for a servant to lie at the feet of his or her master and even sometimes share the same Garment, the same blanket, if you will. That was fairly typical. And what Ruth was doing was letting Boaz know that you can be my kinsman redeemer. I would like for you to be my kinsman redeemer and take care of me. So this is not so much romantic, really, as this is a business transaction. This is a family business matter. It just seems odd to us. So with that in mind, I'm also going to say, especially for the sake of our young people, don't try this at home. This, is, this isn't in the Bible for the sake of go and do likewise. This is not that passage, okay? One of my commentaries said, Naomi puts Ruth at considerable risk by telling her to approach Boaz in such a place. But the fact that Ruth is young and has already attracted Boaz's attention plus the signs that God's providential involvement is going on here have evidently convinced Naomi that it's a risk worth taking. We're at verse five. And she, that is Ruth, said to Naomi, all that you say to me, I will do. So Naomi's telling her, here's the plan. This is what I want you to do. And what does Ruth say? Okay, I'll do it. When our children were young, we tried to ingrain in them that they needed to obey all the way, right away, with a happy heart. That's what we worked on. Somebody taught us those three things before we had children and we tried to implement that. That's what she's doing here. She's going to obey all the way. You you pay attention to that word all. that keeps popping up here. Why does that matter? Why did we try to teach our children that? You probably taught your children something similar, I hope. Why? Well, yes, the Bible says children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. If you don't know that verse, teach that one to your children too. But why are we doing that? Because God said so, yes. But we want to train ourselves and to train our children that when God speaks to them, when the Holy Spirit says, do this or stop doing that, that we will obey all the way, right away, and with the right attitude. That's the objective of parenting. And that seems to me to describe what Ruth is doing here. Does it describe you, young person? Does it describe you, adult? Verse six, so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Other translations say his heart was happy. He was in good spirits. He'd had a good meal. He was satisfied. He was ready to go take some rest. And she came softly, or your Bible may say quietly. Your translation may have secretly. That's the idea. She uncovered his feet and lay down. Now we're going to talk more. I keep saying we're going to, but I intend next week to go to Deuteronomy 25 and talk about the legal process for redemption. But for the moment, know that legally she could have done this publicly. She could have walked to the, the, the town square and sometime when he was coming by said, hey, come here. I want you to be my kinsman redeemer because that is your obligation to Naomi and me. She could have done this publicly, but she didn't. I, I believe that Naomi and Ruth ultimately are doing this in as a submissive way, a, a private way as possible. Someone said that probably the scene took place in the dark so that Boaz had the opportunity to reject the proposal without the whole town knowing about it. Now, I won't ask for testimonies, but how many of you have an interesting or maybe even unusual engagement story, those of you who are married? Anything that went not according to plan or you were especially creative? Oh, okay, I'm getting some people nudging. Okay. There's a surprise element to this engagement story right here. Because it says that now it happened at midnight, I'm, I'm in verse eight, that the man was startled and turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet. She's lying at his feet. Again, this is an act of submission. This is Ruth making a request of him to redeem her. And it's also, as David Jeremiah said, a bold marriage proposal. She's doing it humbly. She's doing it honorably, and she's following the law. So he says in verse 9, who are you? Love to know his tone of voice in that. Is he shocked? Is he surprised? Is Who are you? Are whispering? I don't know. So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. When she says, I am Ruth, your maidservant, those of you who are familiar with the book of Ruth or you've been here, how does Ruth keep getting described? She is Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the Moabitess, five or six times in this book. How does she describe herself? This is the only time she describes herself. I am Ruth, your maidservant previous chapter, she said, why are you being so kind to me? Even though I'm not, and it's either I'm not one of your maidservants or I'm not like one of your maidservants, meaning I'm a a stranger, a foreigner. But how does she identify herself here? I am Ruth. I'm your maidservant. I am your servant. I am coming to you humbly with a request. What's her request? Well, this, this is where Yes, she's following all that her mother-in-law told her to do, but here she's ad-libbing a little bit. This is not quite in the script. She says, take your maidservant. She's taking some initiative here. Instead of waiting to see what Boaz would say, she says, take your maidservant under your wing. Basically, as strange as it seems to us, she's proposing. She's saying, marry me. And she's using the language of, that Boaz used back in chapter 2. Do you remember that? It's chapter 2, verse 12. He's talking about her, and it says, "...the Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge." She's using the same kind of verbiage. First, she had found refuge under the God of Israel. And he comments on that in the previous chapter. And now she's saying, I want to find refuge under your wings. Now, some of you are saying, where are you getting that? Because your translation is a little bit different. Still, legitimate translation says, spread your skirt over your handmaid. That the husband would spread his garment, or the corner of his garment, over the woman he's going to marry. And that's still tradition in, in some Jewish circles. If you want to look up that, that's in Ezekiel 16. God says, I'm going to do that for you, Israel, my people. Ezekiel 16:8. Did any of you in the room, did, did the girl ask the guy to marry? Okay. I asked Rochelle, I did all the, I gave her the ring, will you marry me? But she didn't ask me, she actually told me to marry her. She, we were just riding along in the car. We had already talked, we were in a serious relationship, we were planning to get married, but somehow it just came out, marry me is what she said. So, so she told me, in this case, that's what Ruth is doing. No ifs, ands, or buts. Marry me is what she is saying. Why? Because he's a close relative or a redeemer. That's how I've shared it as our key word. But the Hebrew word I showed you a a week or two ago is gaal, But it has the idea of a redeemer. And so for that reason, I'm going to come back to our slide from earlier. God is the things I gave you, but he is the God of rest and redemption. He is our redeemer. He is The God who redeems. Our kinsman redeemer is who? Jesus Christ. He was God. He came to earth to save us from sin. He paid the penalty, the price, the purchase price for us. We were, Romans 6 says, slaves to sin. And he redeemed us. He bought us back. He paid the penalty. He took our place. He was our substitute And purchased us out of slavery to be his. So that we could have eternal life with him. Now some of you may be wondering. Why didn't she just wait. Till he proposed to her. Wouldn't that make sense. There are a couple of reasons that that didn't make sense in this culture. And in these legal systems. Um, One is more practical. The statement that he makes in this next verse. Suggests that he's older. We talked about this last week. He is, for our purposes, kind of middle-aged, and she's maybe 20s. That's a guess. So he's in the same generation as her in-laws, or her parents, probably. So he's older. He probably doesn't think that he is in the running for her. But there's another reason that he hasn't proposed to her, and we're about to find out what it is, and that's that there is someone who is a nearer kinsman than he is. There's somebody who has first right of refusal. Look at verse 10. Then he said, Blessed are you, Lord. Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Blessed are you of the Lord. This, this is pretty characteristic of Boaz from what we've seen in chapter 2 and now here. He is a gracious man. He is ready to bless people with his lips. That's what he did last week. So this is characteristic of him. He's kind. Um, I, I would take just a second here, and if we look at a broad view of this situation, this is nighttime. This is at the threshing floor. This is during what time period? The period of the judges. So we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2, this could be a dangerous place for Ruth to be. Think of the ways Boaz could have reacted. He could have been mad that she was there. He could have been mad that here you are, you're acting the part of a prostitute coming here at night. He could have rejected her completely. He could have done any number of things, and he does not. He says, blessed are you, daughter of the Lord. He's pronouncing blessings on her. This could have been a very ugly situation. If you were going to make a modern day novel or movie out of this, then this would be the point at which they are doing inappropriate things. They are gonna be lustful and sleep together and other things, there's no hint of that here. This speaks of the character of both Ruth and Boaz, but particularly him in this moment They are going to be pure. They are going to do this the right way. They are going to follow the law. And as I pointed out a minute ago, I'll point out again when we get to it. She is going to lie at his feet during the night. This is not a hot, steamy love scene. This is they are following the laws of that day and the customs of that time and doing it in a pure way, which is what they should have done. Now, I started to go into this last week and I decided to skip over it, but I'm going to plug it in now. How would Boaz have known to treat women kindly and graciously? How would he have known that? Dad is a good answer, and that may be part of it. I'm going to go with his mom. Okay? This is a little bit of conjecture, I admit that. But what we do know is who his mother was. He said, Who's his mother? How many of you, don't say it yet. How many of you know who his mother is? All right. You're going to learn something this morning. If you go over, you don't have to turn there, but if you go over to Matthew and read the genealogy, you're going to read that Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Who's Boaz's mom? Rahab. Rahab of Jericho. Remember the spies came in and they stayed with Rahab. How is she described in the New Testament and the Old Testament? Rahab the prostitute. That's his mom. She's also the first Gentile, spelled out in scripture, who came to be part of the covenant, who joined with Israel, who was a God-fearer. She's the first believing Gentile that we have written about in the Bible. Rahab, the prostitute, that's how we know her, but she's listed among the others who were of great faith, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11. Why? Because she believed in God. God had changed her. She understood what it was to be an outcast. Think of him last week, that he was accepting a foreigner, a girl who's coming in, a poor girl who wants to glean in his field. And he is accepting of her, because his mom was a stranger and an outcast, if you will. And God welcomed her into the fold. She knew what it was like to be mistreated by men and may have told him some of that growing up as well. This is what men can be like. Never do that. Never be that way. Treat women right. Did that conversation take place? I don't know. But it very well could have because she would have been a very solid teacher of these things. So here we are back at our word kindness. Key word, hesed is the Hebrew word. Loving loyalty. Faithfulness. And he's saying that Ruth's kindness at the beginning has been exceeded by her kindness at the end. What is he talking about? At the beginning, she was kind to her mother-in-law. She could have come back to her Moabite family and probably ended up with a husband and a family of her own there in her country, worshiping false gods. Chemosh. But instead, she said, I am with you to the end. That beautiful speech that we looked at. In chapter 1, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. May God do more to me if, I, if anything but death separates you and me. I am going to provide for you. I'm the only family you have. I'm going to be faithful to you. That kind of kindness. And he's saying, you've done better than that. You've gone beyond your original kindness, which I was already impressed by. Because you aren't going after the handsome young men, whether they be poor or rich. The idea is, could have gone richer, and married for money, could have married somebody really poor, could have married for love, and instead, you're following the customs that God put in place, the rule of leveret marriage, and looking for a redeemer to redeem you and marry you. Do not fear. I'm going to take care of this. That's what he's saying. Because everybody knows you are a virtuous woman. Think Proverbs 31. Same words. This can be translated a woman of excellence, a woman of noble character, a worthy woman. Somebody paraphrased it as you are a bride worth winning because you did not go after other men. She's a woman of moral excellence. And people know that about her. So again, cross-reference Proverbs 31. 31, that those who are in the gate recognize that she is one to be praised. Proverbs 31, reference Ruth. Ruth, reference Proverbs 31. But it's not just, okay, she proposes and he says yes, and they all live happily ever after. There's a little glitch in the story. Verse 12, now it is true that I am a close relative However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. He's not the closest relative. He's not the nearest one. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us this is going to be a little more complicated than Naomi may have anticipated. But it also tells us if he knows the answer to this, he may have been thinking about it already. Yeah, he's done his homework as well. Exactly. I will perform this duty. He will fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer if the other person isn't willing. Why? Because his great concern is her redemption that she will be provided for. That's love. He is concerned for her well-being, for her and Naomi's provision. So if he'll do it, great. And if he won't do it, even better. I would be glad to serve in this way. He even makes a vow, the most solemn vow an Israelite could produce is, as the Lord lives, I will do this. I will take care of this. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. I will point it out, because I said I would. She lay at his feet. There's nothing inappropriate taking place here. And then, to protect her reputation, to protect her from gossips, he says, don't even let it be known that you came. So he wants to protect her, and he also wants to be the one to let the closer relative know about it. He wants to take care of this himself rather than everything spreading through town that Ruth has proposed to Boaz. Well, Boaz isn't the first in line. doesn't want any of that. Verse 15. And he said, Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. That's kind of a funny phrase, laid it on her. But ephahs of barley. Anybody have ephahs italicized in your Bible? Two people. Okay, a lot. Good. I hope you do. Because ephahs is not in the text. Not in the Hebrew text. There's no unit of measure there. So if several of you, if you have a different translation from what I have, you probably have measures. Yeah? You have six measures of barley. Well, ephahs probably is not right. That was added by the translators. Ephahs, do you remember last week we talked about an ephah was what she had? It was 30 pounds. Do some math, folks. Six times 30 is what? 180. 180. Now, I said she was strong, and I know the Proverbs 31 has strength in her arms. We talked about that. I don't envision her carrying 180 pounds of grain home with her. So, Sia is what somebody else suggested, and that's more like, oh, I have it in here somewhere, I think it's 60 pounds. Yeah, 60 or so. And some people say she carried it on her head. So, she was strong. If she's carrying 60 pounds on her head, I don't know. But he's giving her barley, And putting it in a shawl, an outer garment perhaps, the same one that she brought so that she would be warm at night. The point is, this is a generous provision. What's he doing here? He's providing for the two widows. That's one thing he's doing here. Second, if you will, there's an alibi. If she's returning from the threshing floor in the morning, well, why were you there? Well, I was going to get this grain. And then third, this is a message to Naomi, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. All right. You all seem like you're with me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and go here. The next words that you have, the, the last sentence of chapter 3, verse 15. You see it there? How many of you, the, the Bible you have with you says, then she went into the city? Put your hands up. Okay, how many of you, it says, then he went into the city? All right, if you've ever wondered how to tell the difference whether you have a male Bible or a female Bible, that's how you know. You go to Ruth three fifteen. And it says he went into the city or she went into the city. And this goes back to the first printing of the King James back in 1611. Apparently the first, very first printing, let's see if I can get this right, says he and the second one was she. So if you're reading in history about biblical texts, and most of you probably aren't, if it says a he Bible, then that means that it says Boaz went back into town. And if it's a she Bible, it means that Ruth went back into town. It doesn't matter to me. This is not a theological issue. They both went back into town because we're going to see in chapter four, he went to the city gate and we know that she went back into town to talk to Naomi. We're at verse 15. Finishing verse 15, let's do verse 16 because at the end of this chapter, just like the previous chapter, it ends with Ruth coming back to Naomi. And in this case, there is more hope in the message than there was. Because what did Boaz promise her? He said, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. This is good news. And she comes, in verse 16, comes to her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law says, is that you, my daughter? And by then, if I were Ruth, I would start having a complex, because earlier, Boaz said, who is this? And now, Naomi, who's supposed to know her, says, who are you, my daughter? Well, that's not really what it means. That's how it's translated for us, but that's not really what she meant. She means, how did it go, my daughter? Some of you have that in your translation. Or somebody made it a little more pointed, better paraphrase. I like this one from Verna McGee. Are you Mrs. Boaz or not? That's the real question that she's asking. And it may have come across that way in the original language for her. Verse 16 continues. Then she told her all that the men had done for her. Verse 17. And she said, these six, there it is again, ephahs, these measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law. This tells us something that we didn't otherwise know. Ruth is filling in something that the narrator didn't share with us yet. That the the gift of the grain wasn't really for Ruth, was it? Who was it for? Naomi. Now this was cool, I liked this. I never would have come up with this, frankly, if I hadn't read one of my commentaries. The expression empty-handed, here in New King James is what I'm reading, is literally just empty. You say, so what, what's the difference? How many remember from chapter one? Naomi came back and she said, I went out full, but I've come back, what? Empty, same Hebrew word. This is how Naomi described herself. And Boaz is saying, give this grain to your mother-in-law so that she won't be empty. God is the God of the insignificant. God is the God of the empty and the full. And this is a promise, of provision. Not only am I going to marry you, Ruth, if the other guy isn't willing, I'm going to provide for your mother-in-law. I'm going to take care of both of you. Make sure she knows that I don't want her to be empty. Beautiful to me. Verse 18. Then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. So you got that? I have that one up on the screen because it's significant to what we're about to talk about. Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Earlier, beginning of the chapter, Naomi told her daughter-in-law, go. Do it and do it this way. She's given her instructions to go act. Now he's saying, don't act. Sit still. Wait. Do you know when to work and when to rest? Anybody else have any trouble with this? I got a few smiles. It's hard to know that sometimes. But Naomi, just like she instructed her daughter, go work, go do this. Now she's saying, wait. Let's see what God is going to do. Let's see what Boaz is going to do. That's where we're going. The best thing in many cases is to wait. There are three times that I know of that people are commanded to be still in the Old Testament. So I'm going to share them with you. This is one of them. Sit still. But let's look at Exodus. You know what was going on in Exodus? God's people had just left Egypt. They were trapped. They have the army of Egypt behind them, and they have the Red Sea in front of them. And what does God say? As if they had a choice. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. He's saying, be quiet, be still, and watch me work. That's what God was telling his people. I don't know if y'all could hear Jeffrey a minute ago, but Psalm 46.10 is be still and know that I am God. Yes, there are times we need to act. Yes, there are times we need to work. There are also times we just need to chill. Either because God hasn't shown us what to do yet, Or because he specifically wants us to be still, and be in his presence, and watch him go to work on our behalf. Or, as we said, the Hebrew word translated "be still" in that verse means take your hands off and relax. So, what do we have here? We have stand still, sit still, be still. And there may be somebody here this morning who needs that word: stop fretting, stop trying to do it yourself. Wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. Now how can we do that? How can we sit still? Anybody else have difficulty sitting still? Sometimes it's a lot easier to get up and do something. It is trust. It is faith. So here's one more. This is not telling you to be still, but it's related to our passage here. Psalm 37.5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass trust him. He'll do it. He hasn't lost anybody yet. He comes through for his people. Sometimes it's late. Sometimes it's after you thought it was possible. But he's good and he's capable. And he does what is right. And he does what is good. Are you trusting in the Lord to work Again, Warren Wearsby. One evidence of your trust will be your willingness to sit still and let him have his way. Naomi said, The man will not rest. You can rest because the man will not rest until he takes care of it today. Why can we trust? Why can we rest? Because God is working on our behalf. He doesn't sleep, He doesn't get tired, He doesn't stop working on behalf of His people. Main idea for today. Find rest in your Redeemer. By the time we get to the end of the chapter, Ruth is supposed to rest in her Redeemer. Because Boaz is going to come through for you. Either he's going to get this other guy to take care of you, or he's going to take care of you himself. But we're not waiting around for Boaz, are we? Applying this to us. Our Redeemer is Jesus Christ. So let me show you one more verse. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. You guys know this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Related words. One of them is the exact same thing that the translators from Hebrew to Greek used for our verse in Ruth. Rest. Naomi wants to find rest for Ruth. Jesus came and what what is he saying? Rest, security, you take your pick on how you want to describe it. Come to me. I will give you rest. Learn from me. Come to me. Learn from me. You will find rest for your soul. You got rest this morning? There are two ways in which I would like you to think of this somebody just smiled at me a second ago you're sleepy i've talked to a couple of you this morning that either a child or a pet or something kept you from some of the sleep you thought you would get last night i get that that's not really what i'm talking about right now i am talking about the settled peace some of you don't know for sure perhaps that Jesus is your savior, that you have eternal life in him. Rest in him. The context of that passage in Matthew 11, the Pharisees, the scribes, the other religious leaders of that day thought they had it all figured out. I'm going to make God happy with me. I'm going to earn my salvation by my righteousness. And he's saying, forget about it. Come to me. I am your righteousness. Come to me. I am your rest. Come to me. I am your salvation. And that's what we need to do. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Jesus. And that's what you need to do. If there's anybody here, anybody watching, listening, come to him. He is the Savior. First Peter says, Knowing that you were not redeemed, that's our word, with corruptible things like silver and gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Most of you in the room, I know your testimony that you are a believer in Jesus for salvation. So you have that type of peace. You have that type of rest. But are you trusting him to take care of you? Sometimes it's a lot easier for us to say, yeah, I'm saved. I know he's going to take me to live with him forever in heaven when I die but I can't trust him with this trial today. I can't trust him with that bill I have to pay. I can't tr- trust him with that health issue. And we need to trust him for this life as well as the next. And that's the rest that some of us need today. He will care for you. He will provide for you. He will sustain you. He will work everything for your good. We talked about that verse last week, Romans eight twenty eight. All things, not some of them, not most of them, all things work together for the good of those who love God for those who are called according to His purpose. Are you going to trust and obey Him? When He tells you to move, are you going to move? When He tells you to stay put and wait on Him, are you going to obey? Are you going to do that? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If the Holy Spirit has pointed to something in your life that needs to change today, would you obey him? That's what we're talking about here. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. If you don't know Jesus as your savior, would you call on him? Our father, would you work in our hearts that the results of this study together this morning would be your results. We know that your word doesn't return to you void. So may it do its work in our hearts this morning and may we obey, may we trust you. Lord, we trust you, but give us grace to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.